Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Lori Dickmeyer. I just finished speaking to Dr. Ji-Yun Lee, the author of China's Hegemony, 400 Years of East Asian Domination. That came out in 2017 with Columbia University Press. This book is very insightful and clearly written, and it's looking at China's hegemony and power from a social science perspective. She is looking specifically at the the Ming and the Hai Qing periods from the perspective of less powerful East Asian actors, that is Korea and Japan. So this book is going to be interesting for those interested in East Asia in general, um, both historically and the present day, but it's also going to be interesting for those who would like to look at international relations and the working of power. Uh, So the power she's looking at here isn't just you know, the military or economics, but it's about legitimation at the domestic level that matters in international relations. So again, this is an extremely insightful book, very interesting, and I can strongly recommend it. So I hope you enjoy our conversation. I did. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies. I'm your host, Lori Dickmeyer. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Ji Young Li uh, about her new book, China's Hegemony, Jiyun Li, welcome to the show. Thank you. I am glad to be here. Uh, thank you. Uh, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a little about yourself. Sure. Um, I am a scholar of international politics, um, teaching in the School of International Service at American University in Washington, D.C. Um, that's where I um, teach courses on Asian security, foreign policies of China, Japan, um, the two Koreas, and the United States. And how did you come to write China's Hegemony, uh, 400 Years of East Asian Domination? Um, you know, um, I, um, I was actually born and grew up in Korea. Um, and when I came to the United States and started studying international relations um, at Georgetown, where I did my PhD, Um, There are a lot of things that uh, didn't make sense about international relations theory um, for me. Um, um, Later, I learned that that's because uh, most international relations theorizing draws on uh, European historical experiences, and um, there was very little space for um, Asian history in the field. Um, But I thought... You know, the experience of Chinese empire and um, Asian diplomacy prior to the 19th century um, are just really full of um, very fascinating histories um, and important details um, that can enrich our understanding about how international politics works. So that actually became the primary drive uh, for me to go much deeper into Asian history as a political scientist. Thank you. Um, So it seems to me that your main focus in your book is looking at uh, China's relationship with supposedly subordinate powers like 
Korea, like Japan during the Ming and Qing dynasties, and the role that they play in the tribute relationship. Um, could you tell us what your your main argument is here? Just just to um, start off, um, I really uh, became um, interested and, and actually took an issue with how in popular dialogue and also in our scholarship, there's this idea that China, when it becomes powerful, um, and and rich, it's going to try to restore the tribute system to dominate Asia. Uh, but when you think about this, um, it's really the underlying assumption is this notion that a country with military and economic power can build a new international order. But I actually challenge this this idea because um, international order is also about social relations. Um, so. Um, I actually try and look at how the Chinese empire and the tribute system operated historically and um, find out that the tribute system was not really a product of China's power um, and not even Chinese culture, but importantly shaped by um, its neighboring countries like Japan and Korea and how they um, their leaders were using that um, Chinese authority for their own domestic uh, legitimation strategies. So um, in this book, I uh, look at and compare Korea and Japan and how they responded to um, China um, as the leading power at the time and show they sometimes complied, um, other times defied um, and or challenged China, um, not because of China's power, but because of their own domestic um, calculations and legitimation strategies. In your first chapter, Understanding the Tribute System, uh, you went into some more depth about how you um, understood the, the literature about the tribute system um, in history and uh, poly, poli sci, other areas. And you decided that it wasn't um, the best idea to call the tribute system, the tribute system, you decide instead to call it tribute practices. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Um, actually, starting this project, I was um, very curious to really find out what um, exactly the tribute system uh, is. People talk a lot about this. Um, and yet, the fact of the matter is that this is a very elusive concept. Um, for example, historian Mark Menkel, he um, talks about how the term um, is a later creation and it wasn't something that contemporaries were using at that time. So I um, just really started serving different contexts um, in different fields um, that uh, were really using this concept or the phenomena um, and found that there are um, at least six different trends of research that seek to understand this phenomena. And um, I, I think for one, I was able to confirm that the tribute system as a concept or phenomena is something that um, we, you know, in social science can uh, match with the notion of hegemony. Um, but in as I was actually really trying to understand the tribute system um, in, in, in the eyes of the contemporaries at that time, um, I, I found that there's 
more to this uh, phenomena that is, um, you know, it, it was really um, a, a way of conducting their relations among East Asian polities and countries. Uh, what I actually did is um, I uh, read the actual writings and reports by Chinese and Korean diplomats, um, the envoys who visited each other's capital uh, on a tributary mission, um, because I really was curious to find out how this you know, notion of authority was expressed and manifested in diplomatic settings. Um, and, and that's how I came to offer a slightly different explanation or approach to the tribute system by proposing it um, to look at it in terms of diplomatic practices, so um, tribute practices. So, um, you know, it, it, to me, it was really striking how prevailing the um, these a series of common practices were and how shared their meanings um, that involved um, tribute, this practice of gift giving and uh, investiture, the practice of tight, the, the grant of titles. Um, so the meanings were such that in any given social relations in um, East Asian diplomatic settings, the meaning of A, sending tribute to B, signified that um, A acknowledged B's position to be superior to that of A. So in this case, um, B is going to be the, 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 the Chinese emperor receiving um, um, tribute and, and granting the investiture. So this was a way of signifying and expressing their, their social relations. So um, I view the tribute practices um, as structuring how um, actors at that time conducted um, their relations, um, not just with China, but also with one another. And in this first chapter, you also um, explained your choice of looking at Korea-China relations and Japanese-Chinese relations um, and not uh, Vietnamese-Chinese relations. Could you explain why you made that particular choice? Um, in, it, it has to do with um, this book's design to use social science methodology. Um, and uh, Vietnam would have made a good case, but um, I, I had two things in mind. One is that um, Japan and Korea actually make good comparison case because you if you compare Korean and Japanese behavior throughout this, you know, hegemonic order period that I look at, basically from the beginning of the Ming Empire's founding um, through High Qing period, you see that Korea actually showed a consistently high level of compliance, um, higher level than um, and participation in the Chinese hegemonic order than um, any other actor. At the same time, Japan actually tended to keep its distance and assert its independence and at the, at the level um, much lower than um, Korea. So you have a very um, um, interesting trajectories that uh, really that makes a researcher interested in comparing uh, why that might be the case. So that's one. And then the second reason is um, 
Vietnam is um, influenced by Confucian culture, the Chinese culture, but it is also an important, importantly part of Southeast Asian culture. So part of my uh, research design is to see and parse out the role of culture, Chinese culture, in this case, Confucian um, culture. So um, I wanted to select the countries that were um, within the Confucian culture, not also in overlapped with any other. Yeah, and that um, touches upon uh, the topic of your second chapter, uh, Chinese hegemonic authority, uh, domestic politics explanation, right? Um is there anything else you'd like there to to add about how you are arguing that Chinese hegemonic authority is an outcome of not only China's material power, but also this combination of less powerful actors, domestic legitimation strategies, and their resonance with this uh, Chinese Confucian ideology? Sure. Um, so um, chapter two is where I um, discuss much of my theoretical ideas. Um, perhaps one can make a case that this chapter is um, to really speak to international relations scholars. Um, so I was actually beginning with some of the building blocks um, to get to my um, own theoretical argument. So basically, um, if um, you look at how international relations scholars try and understand um, this phenomena of um, hegemony or uh, the hegemon, um, the, the, the typical understanding is that um, international order is um, creation of um, the, the power military or economic power of the great powers only. Um, so they tend to approach hegemony in terms of um, military economic power combination. So typically, and other scholars actually have looked at um, the tribute system or the Chinese um, centered international order prior to the 19th century only looking at China. But I do make an argument that there is the other side of hegemony in terms of agency that is um, China's neighboring uh, countries. And um, how about asking why the other actors actually might um, accept, defy, or challenge authority of hegemon? Um, so I show um, in, in the process of researching for this book, I actually come to see how cultural and symbolic resources, um, in addition to military and economic, are a tool for power politics. And um, becoming a hegemon, no matter how powerful you are, actually requires a social process of legitimating uh, one's identity in the eyes of the other. So I try and convey this idea along with this um, important argument in my view that is um, he uh, hegemon is not simply um, you know, the international phenomena, but also we have to consider uh, when we bring in these agency of the less powerful, the domestic uh, calculations of these um, other actors. So I actually um, use um, and cite this quote from um, Adam Watson, who said um, that authority is determined not by those who yield it, but by the attitude of those who obey it. 
So that's where um, I came from in terms of investigating Japanese and um, Korean attitude towards the tribute system when trying to understand the, the Chinese-centered hegemonic order. Then uh, during the next three chapters, three, four, and five, uh, these are your case study chapters. And you begin with looking at the the making of Ming hegemony, uh, looking at how Korea's responses fluctuated from compliance to challenge back to compliance and Japan from defiance to high compliance to low compliance due to domestic uh, situations in both countries. Uh, Could you uh, talk a little bit more about your findings from this chapter? So uh, because I am interested in the the concept of hegemony, um, I the 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 scope condition temporarily um, covers the Ming and Haiching. And what I actually did is to examine my argument. Um, I look at and identify those historical moments um, that Japanese and Korean behavior towards China um, went through um, some drastic changes. Um, If my argument is correct, then um, these drastic changes in their behavior should uh, come from their domestic legitimations um, rather than changes in China's power or culture. So in chapter three, um, I noted that Koreans' um, behavior towards China, Korea at the time uh, was um, late Korea, and then we saw the establishment and the founding of a new dynasty, Joseon. Um, I looked at how Korea's move um, towards military expedition actually against the Ming um, in 1370. Um, and then again, 1388 and then 1398. And I looked and investigated why Korean behavior was fluctuating so very much. And in that same chapter, about the same time, Japanese actually behavior was um, somewhat, um, you know, you can call it outlier behavior from other other periods of Japanese um, diplomatic relations with China, with China that that is um, Japan actually decided to become a main tributary um, during the first decade of the 1400s. Um, when I uh, look at this case, um, I realized that the um, in in both cases there responses to China uh, was very much a function of what was going on within their own domestic situation that 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 is um, both in Joseon's case and also in um, Muromachi Japan they were actually in the process of building a new domestic political order that really needed them um, to um, assert uh, in terms of their leaders, assert their own domestic um, authority in the eyes of um, domestic audiences that let them behave um, um, much more um, assertively um, in terms of their relations with China. Um, so then the question is why, when Korea wanted to, Korean king wanted to enhance their legitimacy, 
they tend to uh, tighten their relations with China, um, whereas when a Japanese uh, shogun, Japanese leader, needed to enhance their legitimacy, they tended to distance and even um, criticize um, China. That actually comes down to um, the, you know, the need for us to understand the the social and cultural context of um, Japan and Korea, even when we understand the similar mechanisms of leaders seeking domestic legitimation. For Korean king, any Korean king who needed to um, enhance their legitimacy, you know, this goes back to the notion of the diplomatic practices. Um, Korean king typically uh, needed to receive investiture the grant of the title king in order for him to um, be um, legitimated as the king. It's a nominal process. Um, You know, you can still be a king without that uh, investiture, but when you do not have it, that's when you get into trouble because that gives excuses um, your domestic rivals to attack you. But in the context of Japan, for any um, military leader, even when you're at the top of um, samurai hierarchy, no matter how powerful, if you want to be a leader at the national level, you needed investiture, not from the Chinese emperor, but from the Japanese emperor, because that's their social context. So um, they actually exhibited a different um, um, pattern, but for um, Japan at the time, in chapter 3, Japan's unusual decision to um, receive investiture um, from the Ming Emperor at the time had to do with um, Yoshimichi's um, unusual desire to actually um, overwhelm him and assert um, his authority even above the Emperor because the Emperor system was actually still consolidating. In Chapter 4, um, I uh, look at how um, Japan um, under Hideyoshi decided to challenge militarily the Ming hegemonic authority. And uh, this is the chapter that I uh, look at the war. Um, you know, it's called Imjin War um, or Hideyoshi's invasion of um, Korea between um, 1592 and 1598. Um, And then in chapter five, um, I look at the other two events uh, comparing Korean and Japanese responses to the rise of Qing. Um, Korean behavior was actually quite interesting because it uh, refused to uh, give into a powerful uh, rising Qing empire's use of military power. Uh, in order to support the weakening Ming Empire in the 19 um, in the 1620s and um, 1630s, whereas um, Japan actually showed a uh, defiance behavior um, and created its own miniature Japan-centered international order, um, especially during the earlier uh, years of the Tokugawa period in the 17th century. So. Um, Throughout these um, case studies, um, I actually um, show that um, there is a very uh, important relationship between um, the domestic um, order formation processes and how Korea and Japan responded to the 
the Chinese um, authority as the leading power. So um, to to actually support my argument um, through these um, um, episodes in in those uh, time periods. I wonder if you might speak a little bit more about uh, the difference between the Ming dynasty and the Qing dynasty, because there really seems to be uh, quite a a strong response to the Manchus, not just as a growing power, but uh, their ethnicity as well. Right. So in this book, um, I, I, I spent quite a bit of time discussing the nature of Chinese power, basically the notion of authority, um, driving, um, like resting on the symbolic power as opposed to simply military or economic. Um, the, the whole practice um, of receiving investiture on the part of Korea and other um, Asian polities uh, had to do with this symbolic authority of the Chinese emperor as the son of heaven. But when you get to the rise of Manchus, um, although they actually claimed that they are the new son of heaven, um, they a, had um, a lot of other practices mixed up. Um, you know, the Qing, uh, new Qing history, um, you know, is famously, um, in, it has shown that the Qing rulers were not simply the son of heaven, but many other things to be able to use um, different identities for strategic reasons. Um, but if you look at this question of um, the traditionally, the, the Manchus who were regarded as barbarians um, in the eyes of Korean Confucian scholar bureaucrats, um, you know, the, the Ming and the Qing are two very different presences, uh, regardless of their military power capabilities. So when the Qing became um, the new son of heaven, quote unquote, um, the Koreans um, were very resistant to send um, their tribute missions and, and receive investiture. And at the time when um, Qing um uh, replaced the Ming, it was the during the time of the reign of King Injo, who um, actually became the king through coup. Um, so he had a lot more reason to enhance his um, legitimacy in the eyes of um, his own um, scholar bureau, Confucian scholar bureaucrats. But receiving the investiture from the barbarians, the Manchus, uh, was not going to do that work. That's why you, you, you get to see how Koreans, while being fearful of watching the Manchus might be doing to their national security, uh, could not actually sever the tributary relations with the declining Ming, still actively pursued the investiture from the Ming, um, even at the risk of um, the Qing invasion um, in 1627, and then, and then again in 1636. And you conclude your book um, by bringing your findings to the present day international order. So I'm wondering if you could explain to us um, how you see these insights 
uh, applying to uh, the contemporary East Asian world? I would actually start by saying that um, I, I think there are important insights um, theoretically in terms of the importance of um, domestic um, legitimacy questions um, in creating and maintaining international order um, with a single powerful actor. Um, but I do not necessarily um, project the, the research that's on historical era to today. Um, having said that, though, I think what we learned from Asian history is the importance of um, the, the decisions made by less powerful actors in Asia. When a lot of people try and understand what's going to happen to Asia, um, you know, we try and, and tend, they tend to look at only the U.S. and Chinese positions and what they do and what kind of outcome their actions and powers are going to bring about. But I make an argument based on what we know from Asian history, the shaping, the creation and the maintenance and the shaping of a new international order is very much um, also a function of less powerful um, Asian powers. You know, what South Korea, what Japan, I mean, Japan's major power, um, Vietnam and other South Asian countries decide to do in terms of supporting a new uh, kind of order that will have an impact on the future of Asia, not simply the actions and power of China and Japan. Um, and do you have any other... Uh, thoughts, perhaps, with the uh, recent current events, um, what role Korea and Japan and, and those other countries you mentioned may have in uh, the future workings of perhaps American or Chinese hegemony? I um, think that um, we should look more carefully at the question of legitimacy when we think about the future of Asia. And, um, and um, that's where I think um, the transition of power, I'm not talking about the typical power transition that a lot of people are talking about, um, but you know, a, a transitioning into a new type of order requires uh, a, a process, social process of legitimation. So um, people talk about whether um, you know, it's going to be a newly China-centered order or whether U.S. is going to maintain its um, hegemonic status in Asia. Um, whatever happens in the future, it's going to entail a process of uh, legitimation and delegitimation. So if U.S. was going to lose its influence and the current hegemonic status, I think it could be not simply about uh, Amer decline of American power and economic um, influence, but it's also going to be about the um, the the kind of appeal that the U.S. had, the symbolic power aspect, and for China as well. Um, you know, when if it, when China wants to become a, a new leading power in Asia, especially 
in view of uh, American hegemony, I think it will have to consider how other actors are actually look at um, China in terms of the symbolic power of China. And I think in that regard, um, we don't really get a very clear picture right now because uh, we're, we're kind of, um, Asia is presenting a lot of challenges in, in, in terms of the bifurcation of, uh, you know, military and economic power, but also in terms of sovereignty claims and historical claims. So um, a lot of things actually will be, um, I, there, there are a lot of moving parts here. Hmm. Well, Jian, I think we've taken up uh, enough of your time. Uh, so I'd like to ask you a final question. Uh, could you tell us what you're working on right now? Um, I'm actually working on something that is more uh, contemporary. So um, I have um, a project that is looking at um, how uh, foreign policy signaling works um, at times of a lot of uncertainties, um, especially in the context of um, Asia. So um, it is about foreign policy signaling and reassurance. Um, and I'm curious and find out, uh, curious to find out how um, countries, actors, they try to reassure others um, about their good intentions, benign intentions, uh, even when they pursue um, um, strategic hedging against uncertainties over others' potentially malign intentions. Um, um, empirically, I, I look at this question um, in terms of um, the contemporary security dynamic in East Asia, particularly with the rise of China and the future of U.S. alliance system in East Asia. So that's what I'm currently working on. Jiyeon, that sounds like a great project. Uh, I want to thank you for being on the show again today. Uh, I really enjoyed it. And take care. Thank you so much. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies, part of the New Books Network. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next time.